We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which Plant Heroes was recorded and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. <laughs> yeah, look, plants are cool because, you know, there's just so much. There's so much that when you look at them, the closer you look at them, the more you realise that there's just so much more to them than, than a pretty flower or a nice coloured foliage or a, a strip of bark. You know, they provide habitat. Um, they're part of a chain. Liza, put a smile upon your face. Welcome to Plant Heroes. I'm Chantel, and we're going to be taking a journey together around Australia to see some pretty cool plants and to meet the people working to save them through translocation, moving them to places that are safer or through artificially helping the populations grow. Some of these people will surprise you. They are researchers, developers, government employees, farmers, volunteers. But their stories are far more nuanced than these titles, and every person has valuable learnings that should be shared if we want to get serious about saving plants. And you dance with your shadow as the sun it warms your core, your blue eyes on the blue sky capture so much more. You don't worry about the clouds for the rain is welcome to. What better place to start sharing those stories than Australia's largest city, Sydney? Here, right on the banks of the harbour, I'm going to take you to meet a species that represents one of the longest-running translocations in Australia and meet a few of the characters with which it's shared its story. Have you heard of it? Probably not. It isn't attractive or eye-catching, but it does grow in a pretty special location. Uh, there's still this little bit of greenery you can walk into and feel you back a couple of hundred years ago with the plants and some of the animals that were there then right in the middle of very urban Vaucluse. Hi, my name's Paul Abbotson. Uh, I work for National Parks for about 20 years. I started hanging around Nielsen Park in 99 and started doing some weeding in the area just as a, a thing that seemed to need doing. And because of that, the managers thought it would be a good idea if I looked after the plant because nobody else was all that interested or had the background that I had. And I looked like the nearest volunteer who was going to be pushed forward to raise my hand whether I liked it or not. Alacazarina portuensis was a species of shrub which was found in Nielsen Park in the mid-80s. It's a fairly unremarkable shrub and wasn't noticed for a very long time. It looks very similar to another species. And in 1986, the local park ranger noticed the plant and thought it looked a little bit unusual, took some down to the botanic gardens, who identified it as a separate species, Alacazarina portuensis, which is the casuarina of the port. The site where it was found is right over the water, right over the harbour. And how many wild plants were there? There was a vast population of 10 plants, 10 individual plants in a very small area. You wow. could walk from one end to the other in about 30 seconds. Um, very restricted range. And why do you think they were restricted? What had caused the population decline? Nobody knows. Nobody knows if they were a widely, uh, a, a widely spread species around the harbour um, and they declined to a small area. Nobody knows if they were a small... Uh, a small hybrid um, which had speciated. Um, when the plant was first found, uh, cuttings and seedlings were grown at Mount Annan. So some of those went into Nielsen Park, just around the place. Um, well, it was just a, let's, where can we put these plants right now? They went in and they became the beginnings of the translocation. Yeah. Not very formal, but they went in there and, and began to, to put some of the population back. So in the context of what we're doing, it's population already within a national park. It wasn't under threat. It didn't have to be 
uh, move to help it survive. But there were so few plants, something had to be done to keep it going. When did the plants go in the ground? The first plants were put in in the ad hoc planting in the uh, or late 90s, and they were put in several different sites. The more formal planting really kicked in about 2002. It was about the same time as the last two of the original plants died. That must have been really satisfying, having an insurance population in place when the original parent plants had died. Otherwise, the species was gone. The yeah. species was pretty close to going. When they were discovered in '86, the plants that were there hadn't reproduced for a very long time. They were very old. This species lives a very rock and roll lifestyle. It's it grows very fast. It starts reproducing very quickly and prolifically. And in an early stage, it stops and just starts hanging around, not doing much, waiting to die. Mm. Previously, fires would have gone through, killed the plants, seeds would have been released. That had stopped, and these plants were just hanging around, waiting for something, ageing, and they were dying very slowly but steadily, and they were gone. So the um, the population at Mount Annan and then the translocated plants, they kept the thing going, they kept the species alive. My role began back in the mid-90s uh, when we found out that there was only two female plants remaining of this species that occurred near Sydney Harbour. That the plant was you know, pretty much on its last legs, uh, we thought, well, we probably should do something in terms of propagation. So uh, we sent a team down there to see what we could do and try cutting propagation to try and secure either some seed or cuttings of these last two plants. That's Peter Cunio. He's now the manager of the Australian Plant Bank at Mount Annan. But in the 90s, he was the horticultural officer responsible for overseeing this program. He said there were only two plants remaining because Alocasurinas are dioecious, meaning there's male and female plants. That made the 10-plant scenario even more precarious as there were only two females. And as Paul mentioned, the wild plants were dying, the last of them senescing shortly after the formal program commenced. Having commenced an ex-situ collection early, before translocations were in place, meant that the genetic stock of those 10 original plants was retained. It's a great outcome, but also it's a lot of responsibility for the person managing the collection. We take that conservation um, role very seriously, so the fact that those plants were dead um, meant that what we had in our own collection is the last remaining um, survivors. And so there's there's quite a, a huge obligation on our part to make sure that these plants not only stay alive, but they're healthy and vigorous. Uh, and then also that it gives us an opportunity to be able to take cuttings and to reproduce them so that we can then put them back into the wild again. Yeah, hi, my name's Mark Viler. Um, my role here is to manage the nursery facilities at Mount Annan and to look after this amazing collection of plants that we have. Uh, so this plant we have here is called Alocasurina portuensis and my role is to curate a what we call a clonal collection of, of this plant and our role in that is to make sure that we have a copy of every single plant from that uh, wild population. So the process involves going out into the field, um, cataloguing and marking each individual plants and then once we've taken a series of what we call cuttings or clonal vegetative material 
Um, we, we assign a, an individual unique number to each one of those clones, which um, is then referenced to that particular individual in the wild. And then we have a, a permanent living record of, of every plant that we have in our own collection. I'm wanting to know how Mount Annan actually propagates this plant because, after all, every plant is different and, as Mark says, they all have their tricks. Luckily, he was happy to share them with us, after a little encouragement. Normally we would propagate after um, what they call the previous season's growth has hardened. When we go to make the cuttings, um, we'll assess that the material is of suitable firmness and, and um, make sure that it is pest disease free and healthy and then um, we'll take individual cuttings and then process them in our um, facility. As part of our routine hygiene is that uh, our secateurs are always cleaned before we, we propagate. And then also to avoid the risk of cross-contamination, we also sterilise in between as well. So if we're taking cuttings from one plant and we're moving to the next, we'll sterilise our pruning equipment and then move on to the next plant. It's really important to keep the cutting material hydrated. Um, in many cases, when you're collecting material, there could be some time between the actual collecting of the material and the propagation. Is there a trick to getting them to strike? Uh, look, there's always tricks. So un unlocking those tricks and secrets, um, yeah, pretty key. Is it a trick you can share? <laughs> yeah, sure, it's not a, it's not a, not a commercial secret. Uh, so generally we'll take material at the, the right time of year and. The cuttings will then be sent up to the, to the nursery where we will bleach sterilise them um, in a bleach solution for a minimum of two minutes. And then we'll um, process the cuttings and we soak them in a hormone solution, which are two known amino acid hormones uh, for rooting hormones as they're called. Um, the ends are then dried and then we dip them in a secondary hormone solution as well. And then they're struck into their punnets. And how long does it take between taking the cuttings and getting the plants into tubes? Yeah, look, that can be, that can be variable, um, but we would expect to see some, some uh, what they call callus formation within about um, six weeks and then rooting within eight. And how long until tube stock are ready to plant? Yeah, look, that, that can vary also. So sometimes you'll find, certainly in clonal collections, uh, the vigours of individual genotypes can vary. Um, but on average, we would, we would expect at least 12 to 18 months before they're of suitable vigour. We always want to build in a little bit of contingencies in there, but so two years is a good, um, a good time frame. What Mark said then is quite important. It means that planning a translocation needs to factor in how you're going to get the material and then making sure that the time is available to grow good quality plants if you're using tube stock. Of course, other things occur simultaneously, but it means that often these projects can't occur in a rush. Something else that has to be considered is the number of plants you want to propagate from, something the Alicajarina team didn't have a choice about. And with such a small number of plants, was there a concern about something like inbreeding depression, that it would no longer reproduce successfully? Enormous pressure because of that. A, a population of 10 plants is barely there. It's, yep. it's barely hanging in, and you're always going to be very limited by the number of individuals. You can't get away from that, so you're stuck with it. There's no choice. You can't go to somewhere else and get more. That's all you've got to work with. But one thing in Paul's favour was the team he had to work with. Portuensis has always been quite lucky in some ways, as the, the plants were only ever found on a land that was already a national park. 
the stakeholder is national parks, the managing agency is national parks. So it's quite easy when you're talking to yourself, asking ourselves, and we tended to agree with each other. Yes. It was, it was a good idea to do what we were doing. So national parks gave the licensing and approvals for translocation at that time? Yeah, at that time, yes. Or was there even uh, licensing for translocation projects in the it, 90s? There's a whole bunch of licensing around um, the scientific processes, which were, I'm not sure that lax is the, the correct word, but the, just simpler. It's developed to a much greater degree in, in recent times. So it was managed without the sort of licenses and um, permissions and planning regimes, which are now in place. Hmm. To date, how many plantings have there been? About 150 plants have gone into the ground, though there have been a lot of mortality. This is 150, over 20 years of a plant that would have lived naturally 10 to 15 years. So they they live and they die. The Alacasurinas, the shrub species of the Casurinas, the smaller ones, are part of that heath species, which you get in heathlands through the east, where the plants grow fast. Nearly all the species will grow quickly, reproduce quickly. And it's a way of dealing with fire. Some Something happens to the species, particularly fire. They're ready to go. The f- seeds have already been dropped to the ground or they're held on the plants ready to go. If they have to take longer than that and there's frequent fire, they're gone. When Portuensis was discovered, it was a new species. Nobody knew much about it. So the biology, the ecology of the species it was really only... It was extrapolated from some other species that are very similar. How the thing grew, where it grew, was, wasn't wasn't known it's just been guessed at over the years we've got some more knowledge about that just putting it in places watching it seeing what happened we've realized that the plant grows really quickly you know a rapid life cycle it's in there growing fast seeding seeding when it's very young and dying fairly quickly we found that it only really grows well in open areas put it under under any shade any canopy nothing happens it grows very slowly doesn't do very well, doesn't flower particularly well. You put it out in the full sun, don't bother watering it, beating down all day long, it's really happy. It took them 10 years to figure out why the translocated plants weren't establishing. They were being too nice. So we were doing a lot of weed control, uh, removing the canopy of the mesic species, the very densely leafed trees in the park, to get light onto the ground. Nice clear area, looking good put some casuarinas in. Having done all the weeding, got the light back onto the ground, all the other stuff that was in the area came up, which is great for them, but for a plant that likes really open areas, they tended to get smothered. So we did learn that rather than putting the casuarinas into recently cleared areas, you're better off putting them into a, a lawn, stick it in there. It was going to do better than putting it into some lovely Angophora forest with beautiful native shrubs underneath. It also became very clear that the uh, the plant serotonous, it the seed capsules will form and they hang on to the seeds. The seeds aren't let go until the branch or the entire plant dies. The seeds are very small. And if they fall into leaf litter, they haven't got a hope. They're going to fall down through to the soil, try and germinate under leaves and sticks and debris, and they never make it. They're only going to have much of a chance when the ground is completely bare. So classically, a fire goes through, burns the plants, the seeds are released onto the ash bed, nothing else around, they'll come up. This is Vaucluse. Um, this is pretty urban. If you look on the, on the map, you're going to look on there and see it's a tiny little blip of green surrounded by, by houses. Fire stopped in that area well over 100 years ago. And it's also quite difficult for us to put a fire through there 
the locals are going to be very nervous about fire, and we're going to get we're going to get sued for steam cleaning the curtains and the and the shagpole carpet if we get any smoke through the houses. Many people attribute Paul as the driving force behind this program, and it's possibly true that without him as a consistent central figure, the project wouldn't have achieved what it did. But he wasn't alone. Working by his side from almost day one was a group of, of really dedicated volunteers that are still continuing now, despite him hanging up his boots. It was a default volunteer group. As a member of the public came in one day and started demanding that we do something about the weeds in Nielsen Park, and the administration assistant there suggested perhaps he'd like to come along and volunteer and help us pull stuff up. 20 years later, the volunteer group that he and I founded um, is still going and has put in a lot of hours around uh, Alicajarinas, but more generally through all of the bushland. So the volunteer group has made a big difference. It's attracted some funding, attracted some publicity. We're able to to publicise what was being done, publicise the plant, publicise Nielsen Park, publicise translocation and environmental concerns generally. And that's where we're going right now. Check out the latest round of planting. And to chat with long-time volunteer Trish McCallery about why she's been around for so long and what this place means to her. Yeah, just pull out the roots at the bottom. I didn't do that for one of the ones I did. Like this. Um, well, we've been involved in planting out the species um, and selecting some, helping select the areas where, where it's going to be planted. The vast majority of the work that we do is just weeding. So there's lots of invasive species that we take out and then the bush naturally comes back. The seed bank is still there and if we get rid of the weeds, the good stock will come back up. So why do you come back week after week? You're doing something for the environment. Um, You're saving things, hopefully creating better habitat for some of our species. And and then there's a social aspect to it too. You meet like-minded people and you enjoy working with them, you learn from each other. Yeah, the team's really important and, and it, it, you know, you, you've really got to work at these things and we look out for each other. So we often, we stop and have morning tea together and chat, shoot the breeze a bit. It's really nice, yeah. I asked Paul why he thought the volunteer group had hung around for so long. What made it such a successful program? And the volunteer group's just there for a good time. You show them a good time give them a bit of fun, explain what's going on, have goals which you can achieve. We're going to clear this by today. We're going to go back over that area. Oh, look how well it's going. Cheer everybody up. Get a terrific morning tea going. I was going to say food. There's got food. To be, there's got to Tremendously be food. important. <laughs> yeah. The packet of cheap, cheap Arnott's biscuits is never going to do it. So we fairly quickly moved into, um, you know, we already just bought something. And that's the glue that holds it together. Delicious food um, and fine coffee. Good food's very important. Yeah, we all actually bring something to share. And uh, I usually bring strawberries, but other people bring sweet things. So, yeah. This all sounds idyllic, but actually volunteerism and unpaid, uncosted contributions have been critical to sustaining the project. Erica Mann is the Senior Threatened Species Officer with the Saving Our Species program. And she came out to check on the latest round of plantings and explained exactly the monetary benefit that the teams have provided. 
Every year we produce a report card for each species under the Saving Our Species program where we try to estimate both the, the costs that are coming in but also the in-kind costs. Last year um, the volunteers put up to $15,000 for in-kind from all the weeding work that they do. That's roughly $300,000 in just volunteer time. Plus there's been heaps of corporate events that total roughly around 5,000 hours. And Goodwill doesn't just extend to Nielsen Park, it's the mainstay of the program at Mount Annan too. We've maintained this collection without any funding over several decades, so the contribution of the staff uh, and, and the organisation has been increasing. You know, we're talking uh, more than 20 years, so you know, I would estimate in the vicinity of 300,000 in kind uh, in terms of repropagations, the watering, the management of this live collection and the seed work as well. And for comparison, how much direct funding would Mount Annan have received? We would have received probably around 20000 would be my estimate, like direct funding to, to manage the collection and to do some of the other research work. So why have you and the staff continued working on this project for so long? Well, I guess we were also inspired by uh, the people working on the ground, uh, and again, it's a continuity thing, like the work of Paul Levitson and his enthusiasm and interest in the plant really, um, I guess, inspired or gave us the incentive uh, to keep going. And that's the power of one person's conviction and dedication. But it can also be pretty difficult when that person leaves. Uh, when the person who set up the program, Paul, retired a couple of years ago, We've been through a bit of up and downs as we've had um, periods where we've uh, had people in for a short period supervising, other periods when we've essentially self-supervised. And um, so that's, that's been a bit challenging because the, as people come and go, they don't know the park. But don't worry, Paul hasn't gone completely. Not yet anyway. I asked him why he kept going, even though he's officially retired. I got into working in the bush because I really liked it. It was a hobby that uh, I found I could get paid for. I did. I was doing it because it just made me feel better, made me feel like I was doing something useful in my day when I was doing a different job. And so I spent 20 years doing that because I cared about it, because it meant something to me. And it's harder to walk away from that when you still care about it and it's still important to you and it still partly defines who you are. But also because there are a variety of constraints on who's available to do jobs, I ended up doing most of this project. So when I went, I took a lot of the knowledge with me. So I was very happy to hang around for as long as it takes to keep on passing that knowledge on to answer the questions and to get involved on the ground doing the stuff that I've been doing for years. It was second nature to me and other people were coming to quite fresh. If I can do it quickly and readily and cheaply, great. Are you finished? Is the translocation finished? No. This, this project is definitely not finished. We haven't got it right by a long way, and we're kind of stuck with it. There's about to be a whole wave of new plantings going, and the plants that I put in over 15 years, a lot of them are dead. They've aged, they've produced seeds, they've sat there hopefully, and been disappointed, and they've died, sadly. And now a whole new wave of planting is going in, in other sites based on around what we've learned. They're not going in the places I put most of the plants initially. They're going in other spots. They're not likely to re- reproduce there. 
but they're going to grow a lot better. And we're spreading more widely, not just in one little bit of Wallara, spread it over around the harbour onto the other spots. Maybe we're getting inching closer towards a viable population. Yeah, I was going to say, if they're not going to reproduce, then does that mean that this species is going to be reliant on artificial reproduction? Yes. In perpetuity? Yes. And Until we all die and plants start taking over again. <laughs> Only then. Yeah. Only then. Erica now leads the translocation program and will be responsible for the new plantings around the harbour and also for a much-anticipated ecological burn at the site, maybe the first one in a 100 years. I asked her if she thought the translocation had been a success. I think yes and no. Um, in the longer term, we still haven't been able to trigger the germination, but we have continued to have plants in the wild, which I think is exciting. We're trying new things. We've moved the plants to other areas. Uh, we've also collected seed. And for the translocation, we're now looking at a method of when the hazard reduction goes through, that we've collected seed and we'll be able to scatter that back onto the ash bed uh, and try that method to see if we can trigger it that way. So that's kind of a new technique we're trying as well. It, I think it's been a wish for a long time to move the species beyond the south side of the harbour and this is the first time we've actually moved it across to the north side. Yeah, that's, that's exciting for It is exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I asked Paul the same question. Has it been successful? The Alacadrina portuensis is very similar to Alacadrina distilla. It's very similar. Distilla is very, very common species. If portuensis hadn't been noticed by the ranger walking past in 1986 by somebody who was interested and knew enough about plants to look at this stuff and go, that's a bit odd, it would have died out and nobody would have ever known its disappearance would have probably have been of minimal consequence to the local area and the planets in general. From other points of view, the project generally has been successful and it's looked after a lot of areas. A lot of other work has been done around that in a much broader area, which has maintained a community in a sea of mansions. And there's still this little bit of greenery you can walk into and feel your back a couple of hundred years ago with the plants and some of the animals that were there then right in the middle of very urban Vaucluse there's a whole bunch of people who know about more about Vaucluse about the vegetation we've talked to a lot of people we've involved a lot of people hundreds and hundreds of people over the years so on that, on that basis there's been some success yeah. it may not last forever uh, but you're doing the best you can and making the biggest difference you can in the time that's available. But maybe it isn't about success or failure, worth it or not worth it. When I stepped off the road into this park for the first time, I, I felt a weight lift and a sense of space returning and a joy at hearing so many birds and insects that you just don't get much in Sydney. All the sounds that you've heard so far are from the site, and I think at least Trish feels the same way. I asked her how important she thought these green islands with their remnant vegetation were. Oh, they're absolutely essential. Um, absolutely, yeah. We need, we really need more of them. And this, this one is, is quite unique. It's, it's a large area, so native stuff was retained. Um, 
and you know you see things like I mean I saw a, a um, yellow-tailed black cockatoo pair with, with her young um, a few weeks ago um, seeing powerful owls so we need these and of course the small birds everything yeah we, we need these areas uh, as, as a safe place for, for our native species to be yeah. it's, it's very rewarding to be involved in this sort of project yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I, I love this. I love this place. Paul's practiced translocation for 20 years, and although he's learnt a lot and sees the value of the project, there is a strong sense that maybe this isn't the right direction. Don't mess it up in the first place. Trying to save stuff with this last gasp, translocation, trying to keep some stuff going somehow or other. It's better than nothing, but only just, in my opinion. It's evident that what on the surface sounds like quite a simple project is more complicated than envisaged. And that even after 20 years, there's still a lot to learn about the species. What I've learned from talking with these plant heroes is that it's less about saving the plant and more about, it's more about what this species and this place has given them. I think Mark Viler, the custodian of the genetic collection, says it best. We asked him what he would tell the plants, if they could understand. Um, yeah, look, I think I, I would, um, I would tell them how much I appreciate them. Yeah. Yeah. What they do. What they, how they make me feel. Every morning the sun rises for you. Thank you so much for listening to Plant Heroes. That gorgeous song is written and produced by Zoe Elliott. If you've got any questions about the Alicajarina project, please get in touch with the team. Uh, you can send me an email via plant-heroes.com or you can get in touch via the New South Wales Saving Our Species program. This series is being produced as part of my PhD uh, focused on plant translocation. Uh, next in the series is the Wollamai Pine. You probably wouldn't think it had been translocated, but it has. And right around the time of the catastrophic fires in the Sydney region. Stay tuned for that one. Thanks again.